Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is your sneak peek for the week of October 10th. It's going to be another short week because there's a federal holiday. So we are going to hear arguments on Tuesday and Wednesday. But first, Kimberly, we just wrapped up an historic first week at the court. You were there for Jackson's first arguments. What do you have to tell us? That's right. So uh, I guess one thing that was new was that the public was allowed into the courtroom to see Justice Jackson's first arguments. Um, I think, you know, one thing to say about Justice Jackson is it seems like she's going to fit in very well on what is a very hot bench at the Supreme Court right now. Um, She's not going to pull any punches. And I think for those wanting to get a sample of the kind of justice, she'll be uh, taking a listen to the voting rights arguments, which happened last Tuesday would be a pretty good start. Uh, A couple of things to note from that argument. Uh, She used originalism, which is a doctrine traditionally associated with conservatives, um, to argue more of a progressive stance in the case. I think that's something that um, we'll continue to see from her based on her comments during her confirmation hearing. Um, And then the other is she uh, took a different tact, I think, than we've seen from some of the other justices, particularly when they're um, new on the bench. There was this one sort of striking moment that stuck out to me. Justice Barrett was asking um, some questions. And uh, Justice Jackson intervened to say, well, I I tend to think that uh, the question is this. And she asked the advocate, do I have the question right? Why should we require this? Or does Justice Barrett have the question right? Why shouldn't we? Um, I think she probably wouldn't have asked the question if she thought she wasn't right. Um, but, you know, she's, she's definitely natural on the bench. I think it was uh, serendipitous that her first argument was an administrative law case where she lives very comfortably um, having, you know, been a judge in the D.C. Circuit, which handles, you know, its fair share or more than its fair share of administrative law cases. So, The thing to say about the public being in the room is that we didn't get any protests. I had been sort of on the lookout to see if we might get some. There had in the past been protests, um, particularly about campaign finance. Um, And I was wondering if we're going to see some of those um, on abortion or just voting rights in general. We didn't get that. Um, I wonder if... The reason why isn't some harsh warnings prior to going into the courtroom. So one of the days I happened to be walking into the courtroom as the public was getting ready, um, kind of standing on the steps, getting ready to go through uh, security and into the courtroom. And one of the Supreme Court security guards was telling them that if they do protest in the courtroom, they will be, you know, punished by up to a year in the D.C. jail, that it's a terrible place. You don't want to end up there. So, uh, you know, don't ruin it for everyone else who wants to come behind you. Um, just something I hadn't heard from the court before, for, particularly from the court, the court security. So it seems like maybe they're on the lookout. I was wondering if part of that is maybe owed to the fact that the court took a very long time to announce that it mm-hmm. was officially going to be open to the public, that maybe that was a very slow rollout on purpose. Because you figure if you kind of have your plan together and you're going to head into the day ready to do something, you're not going to be cowed by whatever the cops there say. But maybe just the people who were going to do that weren't there because mm-hmm. maybe they didn't even know it was really going to be open. So now that there's some more time to organize, maybe we will see something. Yeah, definitely something that I'm not going to stop um, preparing for to see if there are protests there. But so far, 
none. That's all I got from the first week so far. We're going to be rolling into the second week, though. Uh, as you said, Monday is a holiday, but then we're in for Tuesday. So that first argument, Kimberly, on Tuesday is National Pork Producers Council against Ross. What's happening there? Right. So this is a dormant commerce clause case. Uh, it involves a 2018 California law known as Prop 12, uh, which is an anti-animal cruelty law on the production of pork being sold in California. Now, the key here is that uh, about 99% of pork is actually produced outside of California. California consumes about 13% of that. But, you know, pretty much all of the pork producers are going to have to be in 100% compliance because they say just the way that pork is produced, you can't know what part of a pig is going to go to what state. Um, if you want more on that, please feel free to read the very graphic briefs in this case. Um, it reminded me why I have been a vegetarian for a very long time. But the whole idea here is that there's some tension between California's ability to regulate, you know, products sold within its borders and the effects that it might have on other states. So, you know, complicating this whole case is the fact that some of the justices on the current court don't believe in the dormant commerce clause. Um, and uh, so that, I think, will add sort of a, a side note to the arguments. Uh, the Solicitor General here is actually weighing in on the side of the pork producers, but they do so on mo a more narrow question uh, about balancing whether or not the burdens on out-of-state production, you know, outweigh the benefits to those within the state. And I think what's underlying the whole question here is this concern um, that if the court goes either way, you know, what's going to happen on the extreme? So I don't think it's hard to kind of think of an extreme case where states try to regulate um, abortion laws in other states. Mm. So I don't think it's hard to imagine a situation where a state like California says, you can't sell any pork within our state unless it's been produced in a state where the employees have access to abortion care. So I think that's sort of what's on everybody's mind. There's extremes going the other way as well. Here, we're going to have four attorneys arguing. We've got the pork producers, the Solicitor General on their side, and then on the other side, it's California and the Humane Society, which intervened below. Uh, so right now, the court has set aside 70 minutes for the argument, but it seems like those are more aspirational goals um, rather than actual time limits these days. Um, you know, the voting rights case went almost two hours. And uh, I think the same for the environmental case, which uh, kicked off the 2022 term. So I suspect this will be another one of those cases where we'll go long. So for those of you wanting to hear the next case, uh, you know, you can give yourself a little a little buffer time. What what are those people going to be hearing if they are waiting for that second case, Jordan? Sure, Kimberly. Let me just say that was a, a great segue. So the second case is the case of Rodney Reed. Rodney Reed is on Texas death row, and he's long maintained his innocence. His case has caught the eye of celebrities, including Kim Kardashian, but the court won't be talking about any of that. The legal issue has to do with DNA testing and statutes of limitations. So the question is, when does that limitations period start to run for a federal claim that state-level DNA procedures are inadequate? Does it start at the end of state court litigation denying testing, which would include any appeals, or does it start when the trial court denies testing? So the Fifth Circuit, where Reed's case came from, took the latter stricter approach. <gasps> I'm shocked. Right. 
So Reed's going to try and convince the Supreme Court to, well, they did have some company. I believe it was the Seventh Circuit as well. And it's the Eleventh Circuit, which is on the other end of it. So you never know exactly, hmm. although that does seem to type as far as the Fifth Circuit's concerned anyway. So that circuit, they did take that stricter approach. Reed's going to try and convince the Supreme Court to make the former standard, the national one, the one that the Eleventh Circuit went with. And Reed says that starting the clock just after a trial level denial makes no sense. That's a direct quote from his petition because trial courts aren't the ultimate arbiters of state law. And so Kimberly, obviously, we have some very real consequences at stake here, not just for Reed's case, but for others as well in terms of whether potentially innocent people are locked up or in Reed's case, even executed. And that's Tuesday. That's Tuesday. And then the justices will be back in the courtroom on Wednesday for the Andy Warhol case, which we teed up in our deep dive episode. So if you're interested in that case, take a listen. We've also got a great video by our video team here on that case. But Jordan, for those people who missed that one, tell us what's going on here. That's right, Kimberly. Hopefully the case does sound somewhat familiar to listeners. It's the Andy Warhol case, as you said, that we did for our deep dive with Mel Boswick. So this is the copyright case involving Warhol's Prince artwork based off the photograph by Lynn Goldsmith. The issue is whether it was fair use and what that even means exactly, what tests the justices are going to apply here. And it's the first non-software fair use case in decades. So the copyright world is going to be watching this one closely. And as you mentioned, Kimberly, definitely check out our deep dive with Mel for more on that one if you haven't listened yet. And to round out this short week, what do we have for the second case on Wednesday? Well, the second and last case of the October sitting is Helix Energy Solutions versus Hewitt. Uh, so glad that the two parties here are Helix and Hewitt. That doesn't confuse things at all. Love it. Um, the issue here is overtime pay under the Fair Labor Standards Act, and in particular, uh, the salary basis test, which determines if a worker is exempt from overtime requirements. So here, Michael Hewitt is a highly compensated employee, that's a technical term, highly compensated employee, with executive duties, who is paid on a daily rate. So he's not you know, a traditional salaried worker. And the question here is whether to qualify as exempt for overtime pay, an employee must meet both the amount requirements of a highly compensated worker, which is over $100,000, and also the minimum guarantee requirement, meaning that he's paid at least $450 per week. So the hitch here is that Hewitt is paid on a daily basis, so he, he meets the $455, um, but on weeks where he doesn't work, he doesn't get paid. Um, and so he meets the, you know, the $100,000 mark by far. He makes more than double that. Um, but the question is whether or not he has to be guaranteed that amount on a weekly basis. One of the, you know, significant issues in the case here is there's a potential Chevron issue. Chevron is the foundational administrative law doctrine that says, you know, where a statute is ambiguous, that courts should generally defer to, you know, the agency's interpretation of that statute. 
we have um, some question about the current court, you know, how much they really think that that's, you know, still good law. Um, we've seen them try to cut back on that um, in ways without actually mentioning Chevron. Uh, this one is one where they could go uh, right for Chevron. But there's also a petition that's going to be heard on Friday's conference um, that takes this question on head on. So, it, you know, we'll see what the appetite is of the justices that they want to deal with Chevron here if they just want to keep this a pretty narrow labor case. Um, but that's Helix Hewitt. And that does it for this sneak peek. But you know what? We have our deep dive looking back at the sitting coming up next week. That's right. Well, until then, you can follow along with the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.